0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to From the Pulpit on the Restoration Radio Network. This show will air weekly on Thursday nights and will be a presentation of the most informative sermons, conferences, and lectures from Catholic clergy on critical topics for Roman Catholics to find their way and to hold their faith during this horrendous crisis, the modernist heresy, which permeates the Church and the world at every level. From the Pulpit is underwritten by True Restoration Press and True Restoration Media with streaming videos and membership subscriptions available at truerestoration.org. And while a portion of the operating costs of this program are underwritten by True Restoration Press, we are truly dependent upon listener donations for the continued success of these broadcasts. Restoration radio programs, including this one, are available in the iTunes Store and are syndicated on TuneIn and Stitcher. You can follow the work of True Restoration at truerestoration.blogspot.com on our Facebook page and our recently added daily news feed which is linked on the blog homepage. On tonight's broadcast, we will continue a series of sermons on Vatican II presented by His Excellency, Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. This series began on August the 8th and is airing over a five-week time span. It will take us right to the root of the problem which, without question, has caused the near-complete destruction of everything once recognizable as the Roman Catholic Church her institutions, her liturgy, her doctrine, and her disciplines, the Second Vatican Council. If you missed any prior broadcasts in these series, you may listen to them on demand at any time at the Restoration Radio homepage by clicking the From the Pulpit series links. We will air two sermons per week in back-to-back format so that our listeners may digest and ponder the material given each week. Let us now join Bishop Sanborn as he explains the error on the decree of ecumenism and in the second half of our program, The Error of Religious Liberty.
1: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Today we will continue our series concerning the errors of Vatican II. And this week I would like to speak to you about the error of the decree on ecumenism, which says that non-Catholic churches and religions are a means of salvation. Now remember that all of this is spurred on by the ecumenical frenzy. That in order to achieve the goal of the amalgamation of religions, it is necessary to remove the dogmas that are the obstacles to these religions. Not all dogmas must go because not all of them are obstacles. And in order to dispense with those problems, they cultivate a dogmatic indifference, which we will see later. But one of the doctrines of the church that is an obstacle to the amalgamation of religions is the teaching that outside the church there is no salvation, that the church is the unique source of salvation in the world. And so that dogma had to be destroyed. And this is the way they destroyed it. They said the Spirit of Christ has not refrained from using them and them here, if you see the text, refers to the separated churches. Has not refrained from using them as means of salvation which derive their efficacy from the very fullness of grace and truth entrusted trusted to the church. Now when they say the church, they mean this big invisible church of Christ. Now the church teaches and has always taught that outside the church there is no salvation. In the in Latin, it is a beautiful formula, extra ecclesia nulla salus. It is like a Trinitarian formula or or one of the great formulas of the faith. Outside the church there is no salvation. Pope Pius IX calls this dogma a most well-known Catholic dogma. And he said in an encyclical in 1854 that it, and this is a quote, it must be held by faith that outside the apostolic Roman church no one can be saved that this is the unique ark of salvation and that he who does not enter it shall perish in the flood. Now what does the church understand by this doctrine? It understands first that the Roman Catholic Church is the unique church of Christ and that to her alone has been confided the means of salvation. It also understands that anyone who knowingly and voluntarily does not enter this church or those who have entered it and are a part of it, then leave it, they will go to hell. It also understands that those who are outside of it through no fault of their own that is, uh, through invincible ignorance, are not guilty of sin on this account and will not go to hell on this account that they have not joined the Roman Catholic Church. And the reason is, as as Pope Pius IX says, is that with all obligation, and, and as a general rule that applies to all sin, that if you do not know that you are committing a sin, if you are not aware of an obligation through invincible ignorance, that is, you have no idea and cannot find out by ordinary means, that that sin is not able to be imputed to you, applied to you. And that applies to this obligation. But to go from that, from the fact that some people may be in good faith ignorant of the Catholic faith and for that reason are not going to hell because of their ignorance, to go from that fact to saying that the that a non-Catholic religion or a non-Catholic sect is a means of salvation Is not only an absurdity, but it is also a blasphemy, and we'll see why. I'll give you an example. If you are out hunting and you shoot a man thinking that it's a deer, that sin of shooting a man, which would ordinarily be murder, is not imputed to you because you thought that man was a deer. Morally, there is no sin. You would not even have to confess it, even if you shot him dead. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that you can make, therefore, a legitimate sport out of going into the woods and shooting people. It's an absurdity. And that's what they're trying to say, that because some people may be excused because of their ignorance, that then it becomes legitimate to practice these religions and these religions actually take on a a legitimacy of being a means of salvation, that God uses them as a means of salvation. It's as absurd as saying that, that you could go and make a sport out of shooting people in the woods. Now, it is true that valid sacraments are found outside the Catholic Church. That's true. Heretics, schismatics, Jews, Muslims, and atheists can all validly baptize, as an example. The baptisms of many of the Protestant sects are valid. Probably the Anglicans and Episcopalians, in most cases, baptize validly. The Greek Orthodox, as a rule, have the priesthood and have the episcopacy and therefore have a valid Holy Eucharist and a valid sacrifice of the Mass. Of this there is no doubt. But from that fact that these valid sacraments exist outside the confines of the Catholic Church, From that fact, it cannot be inferred that separated churches, as they call them, can be used or are used by the Spirit of Christ as a means of salvation. Christ uses the Roman Catholic Church as his unique means of salvation since it is his mystical body and his immaculate spouse and therefore endowed with all of the qualities necessary to be an instrument of divine authority in the world. In order that something be an instrument, it must have certain qualities. In order for you to write, you must need an instrument like a pen that has certain qualities that permits it to write. If it does not have those qualities, you put it down, you have no use for it, It is in no way serves its purpose if it does not have those qualities. And the qualities that the church of Christ must have in order to be the means of salvation are the qualities of infallibility and indefectibility that anyone approaching that church receives the true doctrine of Christ and cannot receive falsehood, but receives the true, unerring doctrine of Christ. That is the only way in which God can use a religion. And unless He endow that religion with the gift of infallibility, that religion is worthless. And the only one endowed with that is the religion which He founded the Roman Catholic Church. And it is the only church which even claims it, oddly enough. The others don't even claim to have the, the one quality or one of the qualities and the most important quality which would make it an instrument of salvation. And that is infallibility. The others don't even claim it. Christ or the Spirit of Christ, which is the Holy Ghost, cannot use a non-Catholic church or religion or sect as a means of salvation since owing to its schism or its heresy, it cannot sanctify men. God could no more use one of these religions as a means of salvation than a man could use a spoon to cut down a tree. A spoon would be useless in cutting down a tree. It is a wonderful instrument of eating mush, but it is useless in cutting down a tree because it does not have the necessary qualities. And so also schism and heresy make the sect or the religion incapable of being an instrument or a means of salvation because God is truth. I have come to witness unto the truth, he said to Pilate, and those who are of the truth hear my voice. How is it possible, even conceivable, that God could use a sect which promotes heresy concerning Him, an error concerning Him, that He could use that as a means of sanctifying people? What does sanctification mean? Sanctification means that you're like God. How can he use a sect which promotes error, which promotes, which promotes heresy, that says, for instance, that our Lord Jesus Christ is not present in the Holy Eucharist? How could he use such a sect to make men like himself? It is impossible. It is a blasphemy to think it. It is a blasphemy to think that he either could or would use anything like that as a means of salvation. Now, imagine, for example, compose the scene in your mind of our Lord preaching the doctrine of the Holy Eucharist in the synagogue of Capernaum. And there he has his apostles and other people who are interested in his doctrines. He preaches the doctrine of the Holy Eucharist. He says, my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. And at the end of this discourse, some of the people begin to murmur and say, this is a hard saying. How can this man give us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink? And many, if not most of them, turned their backs on him and walked off. Now imagine if he said to those people, hold it. I will give you an apostolic mission. I'll set you up as a church too. And you can preach the doctrine that the Holy Eucharist is nothing but bread. But you'll be alright too. You'll be legitimate. You can have your own church. And then the apostles will have their church. The ones that remain faithful to me on this doctrine will have their church too. And you'll both be able to be fishers of men. Imagine the absurdity of of such a scene. Imagine changing the gospel in such a way. Or again, imagine this, that if there were a schism among the apostles, even after the Last Supper, when they had the power to confect the Holy Eucharist, let's say there was a schism, and let's say some of them denied the Holy Eucharist, and there they are, on Mount Olivet, and our Lord is ready to ascend into heaven. And he says, Going, therefore, teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And those who do not believe shall be condemned. The words of Christ. And he says it to these who who preach the doctrine of the Holy Eucharist, and he says it to those who say that the Holy Eucharist is a blasphemy. He says the same thing to both of them, even though they're split up. You will be the church of Christ with a mission from Christ, and you will be the church of Christ with a mission from Christ, even though you contradict each other on my Holy Eucharist. And he says to each of them who does not believe, your preaching shall be condemned. So if you believe the one, you're condemned by the other, and if you believe the other, you're condemned by the first one. This is an absurdity. This is an absurdity that many churches that contradict each other could be the church of Christ or that they could be a means of salvation. Imagine changing the gospel, a gospel like that we would laugh at. Because God is truth and He has come to witness unto the truth. The fact that Protestants give valid baptism or that the Greeks have a valid priesthood and Holy Eucharist means nothing. They use these things in an illegitimate manner. In the same way that someone who stole your car uses your car in an illegitimate manner. The fact that your car works in his driveway and he goes out and takes it, around and, and takes it ar- out and drives it around does not in any way legitimatize his thievery. Those things are the sacraments of Christ. And yes, they work. Just like your car works when it's stolen. But the fact that somebody would use your car actually makes him more guilty. It is one thing to steal it. It is another thing to drive it around. It makes him more guilty. And it makes them more guilty and does not legitimatize their use or in any way legitimatize them as churches because they have these things. It makes them more guilty. St. Thomas Aquinas says that the masses of schismatics do not give grace. It is the teaching of the church that the, the source and flow of grace in the world comes from the holy sacrifice of the mass. Just as the blood of Christ flowed down from Calvary, this is a constant flow. And St. Thomas says that the masses of schismatics, although they're valid, do not cause this flow of grace on the world. Why? Because God is displeased. It is as if to take one of the lambs of his flock and sacrifice them outside of his flock. Christ is the Lamb of God and he must be sacrificed in the church of Christ. And when he is sacrificed outside of the church of Christ, that is not pleasing to God the Father. And St. Jerome says that the masses of the schismatics rise as a stench to God and he holds his nose. Those are the words of St. Jerome. That God holds his nose for the stench because he is displeased, that does not rise as a pleasing sacrifice to God. Rather, it stays down on earth like the sacrifice of Cain. So it means nothing that elements of sanctification, if you want to call them, or as as Vatican II calls them, are found in other religions. It means nothing. It, It actually accuses them more if they abandon the religion, they should abandon the things of Christ altogether. And the fathers of the church are universal in their attestation that it is impossible to have salvation outside of the church of Christ. They are so explicit and there is so much testimony And they are so perfectly universal in their teaching that it would be impossible in a single sermon to quote all of their sayings. They all say it. And they all say it explicitly. It comes from the doctrine of the apostles. Read St. John the Evangelist. What he says in his epistles about the heretics and those who have the spirit of Antichrist. This is apostolic doctrine. And yet, Voitiwa JP 2 he confirms the evil doctrine of Vatican II. In his encyclical on the Catechism, back in 1981, he said, It is extremely important to give a fair and correct presentation of the other churches and ecclesial communities that the Spirit of Christ does not refrain from using as a means of salvation. So he insists that this evil doctrine, which contradicts explicitly the teaching of the church, be fed to the little children on a universal plane. Be fed to the little children that they be taught these evil things. It is it is amazing to, to, that they get away with this. It is shocking that the council could have been so bold as to say it and it is more shocking that these people get away with saying these things because they are so clearly against the teaching of the church. For listen to the words of Pius IX in contrast to Voitiwa. Pope Pius IX in an encyclical in 1863 condemns, and this is a quote, the very grave error which is found among some Catholics who adopt the belief that persons living in errors and outside the true faith can arrive at eternal life. This is supremely contrary to Catholic doctrine. Unquote. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
0: We hope you're enjoying tonight's episode of From the Pulpit. Please be sure to visit truerestoration.org and click on the True Restoration media link ...to view our available streaming videos and membership subscriptions for purchase and direct download. These purchases will help us continue to bring you the best content and show guests in the Catholic world today. And now, we present the continuation of tonight's program. In the name of the Father,
1: and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Today I would like to resume my series of sermons on Vatican II... This being the sermon concerning the error of religious liberty. And because of the length of the subject, it will have to be divided into two sermons, one given this week, the the other next week. Now first, let us review briefly the errors of Vatican II that we have already seen. The fundamental error consists in an error about God that he is present in a supernatural way in all men without any distinction, and that it is the role of religion to merely remind people of the presence of God in them, to extract from them a religious experience. This corresponds to what Saint Pius X called immanentism in his condemnation of modernism in 1907, in the encyclical Paschendi. This error of immanentism gives rise to ecumenism, which is the second great error of this council, which is that all religions, being fundamentally an outgrowth of this interior religious sense, ought to come together and form a great amalgamation, setting aside their dogmatic differences. Ecumenism calls for a dogmaless humanitarian church, and the Vatican II religionists have been gradually changing the Catholic religion into a dogmaless humanitarian religion. Ecumenism gives rise to the error concerning the church that we saw, that the Church of Christ and the Roman Catholic Church, are not exactly the same thing, but that the Church of Christ is a much broader religion or church taking in, as the Council says, all who look with faith toward Jesus. And from this error concerning the Church comes the error of saying that non-Catholic religions are a means of salvation, a teaching which is explicitly contrary to the teaching of the church, the dogma of the church, that outside the church there is no salvation. And now we come to the heresy of religious liberty, which is an outflow from what we have just said, that all religions are in some way legitimate, all religions lead to God. The conclusion is the heresy which states that all men have a right to profess whatever religion they see fit according to their individual consciences and that they have a right to practice these religions in society and a rightly ordered society is that which guarantees religious freedom to all. This is explicitly stated by the document concerning religious liberty and is said over and over again by John Paul II. Now, let me give you a little background concerning religious liberty. Before the French Revolution and the so-called 18th century Enlightenment, which led up to it, the idea of religious liberty was unheard of. The idea that you have a right to believe whatever you want. It was unheard of. Not in the history of even paganism did you see states Adopt the idea that it doesn't matter what religion you profess or that the state should profess no religion. Unheard of. And therefore, you do not see any condemnation of it in the church's teaching until the 19th century. Now, there was a great deal of religious toleration, but religious toleration is not religious liberty. Religious toleration is to tolerate as an evil a false religion in order to avoid a greater problem, say, perhaps a civil war. And so even in Catholic countries, Protestantism and other false religions were at times tolerated in order to avoid civil war. That is not to say that you have a right to do that but that what you are doing is an evil to which you have no right, but something which we are merely tolerating to avoid a more serious evil. For right comes from God. If you have a right to do something, it is a moral faculty, that is, it is a power from God to do something. And God cannot give a right to do something wrong. That would be against his essence. God cannot give you a right to embrace error, a right to embrace heresy. That would be against his essence, against his truth. I am the Lord thy God, he said, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. He did not say to Moses as the first commandment, I communicate to all men the right to believe whatever religion they choose. But with the French Revolution and the American Revolution and American Constitution, there came a new social order in which all religions were placed on the same level and in which the state was indifferent to all of them. This was a hotly discussed manner, a matter at the Constitutional Convention in this country in 1788 and 1789. Because even the Protestants were scandalized by Jefferson's suggestion that the state be indifferent. Even the Protestants were scandalized. That how can you have an indifferent state, a state that does not profess a religion? Jefferson was a deist. He was a a Freemason and a deist. And they the Protestants were so scandalized by what he said that they accused him of being a non-believer that is an atheist. Yet the system of Jefferson prevailed. This required that the state recognize in each individual what is known as a freedom of conscience and a freedom of religion, understanding. By that, a right to profess, both as an individual and as a society, whatever religion one pleases. There appeared in the church, therefore, in the 19th century, a phenomenon known as liberal Catholicism. The proponents of which held that the new social principles were not incompatible with the church's teaching. That somehow the church could make peace with these new principles. That there was nothing wrong, there was nothing against the first commandment. This in some way did not contradict what the church taught. These were known as the liberal Catholics in the 19th century. And because they were vocal, and more importantly, because some of them were clergy and even high clergy, such as bishops, it was necessary for the Pope to condemn this doctrine, and this doctrine of freedom of conscience and freedom of religion, and with it freedom of press and freedom of the speech of speech, was, were condemned. All of these doctrines were condemned, particularly by Pope Gregory the Sixteenth in 1832, and by Pope Pius the in 1864. Now. This is a little shocking and alien to us because we have learned from our culture that things like freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, and freedom of speech are sacred values. Values which the Constitution holds in, in great reverence and which all good Americans should hold in great reverence. But in fact, these are inventions of the enemies of the church. These are inventions of Freemasons of the 18th century. People like Voltaire, people like Diderot, the encyclopedists. People who plotted the very destruction of the church that we are witnessing with our eyes today. People who plotted, like the the Illuminati and and Adam Weishaupt and others, who plotted to put a pope on the throne who would be in accordance with their own liberal ideas. And these writings can be found in the early 19th century. And so these ideas come forth from these people. And so Catholics must divest themselves of these evil ideas because they come from people who are the enemies of the Catholic Church. But nonetheless, there was always in the Church a group of people and not a small group who said, no, we can somehow incorporate these things into the Catholic faith. So the Pope saw it necessary to condemn. Pope Gregory the Sixteenth, in 1832 said this concerning indifferentism and religious liberty. He said, this shameful font of indifferentism gives rise to that absurd and erroneous position, proposition which claims that liberty of conscience must be maintained for everyone. It spreads ruin in sacred and civil affairs, though some repeat over and over again with the greatest impudence that some advantage accrues to religion from it. But the death of the soul is worse than freedom of error, as St. Augustine was wont to say. When all restraint are removed by which men are kept on the narrow path of truth, their nature, which is already inclined to evil, propels them to ruin. Then truly the bottomless pit is opened from which John saw smoke ascending which obscured the sun and out of which locusts flew forth to devastate the earth. Thence comes transformation of minds, corruption of youths, contempt of sacred things and holy laws, in other words, a pestilence more deadly to the state than any other. Experience shows, even from earliest times, that cities renowned for wealth, dominion, and glory perished as a result of this single evil, namely, immoderate freedom of opinion, license of free speech, and desire for novelty. Now, Pope Pius IX in 1864 made an even more, made a stronger condemnation of the same principles. He said, But although we have not omitted often to proscribe and reprobate the chief errors of this kind, yet the cause of the Catholic Church and the salvation of souls entrusted to us by God. And the welfare of human society itself altogether demand that we again stir up your pastoral solicitude, he is writing to bishops, to exterminate other evil opinions which bring forth from the said errors as from a fountain, excuse me, which spring forth from the said errors as from a fountain which false and perverse opinions are on that ground, the more to be detested because they chiefly tend to this, that, that salutary influence be impeded and even removed, which the Catholic Church, according to the institution and command of her divine author, should freely exercise even to the end of the world, not only over private individuals, but over nations, peoples, and their sovereign princes, and tend also to take away that mutual fellowship and concord of councils between church and state which has ever proved itself propitious and salutary, both for religious and civil interests. For you well know, venerable brethren, that at this time men are found, not a few, who, applying to civil society the impious An absurd principle of naturalism, as they call it, dare to teach that the best best constitution of public society and also civil progress altogether require that human society be conducted and governed without regard being had to religion any more than if it did not exist or at least without any distinction being made between the true religion and false ones. And, against the doctrine of Scripture, of the Church, and of the Holy Fathers, they do not hesitate to assert that that is the best condition of civil society in which no duty is recognized as attached to the civil power of restraining by enacted penalties offenders against the Catholic religion except so far as public peace may require. From which totally false idea of social government, they do not fear to foster that erroneous opinion, most fatal in its effects on the Catholic Church and on the salvation of souls called by our predecessor Gregory Sixteenth an insanity, namely, that liberty of conscience and worship is man's personal right, which ought to be legally proclaimed and asserted in every rightly constituted society, and that a right resides in the citizens to an absolute liberty which should be restrained by no authority, whether ecclesiastical or civil, whereby they may be able openly and publicly to manifest and declare any of their ideas, whatever, Either by word of mouth, by the press, or in any other way. But while they rashly affirm this, they do not think and consider that they are preaching liberty of perdition, and that if human arguments are always allowed free room for discussion, there will never be wanting men who will dare to resist truth and to trust in the flowing speech of human wisdom whereas we know from the very teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ how carefully Christian faith and wisdom should avoid this most injurious babbling. And he affirms these condemnations with his apostolic authority. And I was reading very recently that the theologians of the time took these condemnations to be an ex cathedra, solemn, infallible statement of the Pope. both for the fact that he used this language which I am about to say and for the fact that all of the bishops took this document and preached it and taught it in their dioceses and taught these doctrines as condemned. He says at the end of this encyclical, amidst therefore such great perversity of depraved opinions, we well-remembering our apostolic office and very greatly solicitous for our most holy religion, for sound doctrine and the salvation of souls which is entrusted to us by God, and solicitous also for the welfare of human society itself, have thought it right again to raise up our apostolic voice, therefore by our apostolic authority, we reprobate, proscribe, and condemn all the singular and evil opinions and doctrines severally mentioned in this letter and will and command that they be thoroughly held by all the children of the Catholic Church as reprobated, proscribed, and condemned. And despite this, Vatican II will teach that each man has the right to freedom of religion and freedom of conscience, and that a rightly constituted society is that which provides for the practice of freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. This is as much of a contradiction as to say that man has a right to practice birth control. For Pope Pius XI in the 1930s declared that birth control was evil and condemned it and cited sacred scripture against it. And again, the theologians of that time took that to be an infallible statement of the Pope. It would be as much a contradiction of Catholic doctrine to say a man has a right to practice artificial birth control as it would be to say a man has a right to liberty of conscience and liberty of religion. They are both on the same plane of the teaching authority of the Catholic Church But next week, I will show you why this doctrine was ignored, why there persisted the liberal Catholics in the Church who said that this is a legitimate doctrine, that this is something that is livable with regard to the Catholic faith, and why, therefore, in 1965, on December 7th, 1965, Paul VI signed into effect this dreadful doctrine of religious liberty, thereby giving the kiss of death to the council. For it was its kiss of death to contradict previous Catholic doctrine. It is a sure sign that that is not the teaching of the Catholic Church, a sure sign that the Holy Ghost was not operative in that council. It was the final act of the council. It was the last thing to be done, and it was its kiss of death. And next week I will point out to you just exactly how they, they contradicted this teaching of the Catholic Church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.
0: We hope you're enjoying tonight's episode of From the Pulpit. Please be sure to visit truerestoration.org and click on the True Restoration media link to view our available streaming videos and membership subscriptions for purchase and direct download. These purchases will help us continue to bring you the best content and show guests in the Catholic world today. And now, we present the continuation of tonight's program.
1: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Today I would like to continue the sermon of last week concerning religious liberty. Last week we saw that the following things were solemnly condemned by the church. First, that the best condition of public society and also civil progress altogether require that human society be conducted and governed with regard, with no regard being had for religion any more than if it did not exist. Second, that it is the best condition of society in which no duty is recognized as attached to the civil power of restraining by enacted penalties offenders against the Catholic religion except so far as peace may require, is our direct quotes from Pius IX. Furthermore, it is condemned that liberty of conscience and worship is each man's personal right which ought to be legally proclaimed and asserted in every rightly constituted society. And it is furthermore condemned. And Pope Pius IX said it is against the scriptures, it is against the teaching of the church and against the teaching of the Holy Fathers. This, that a right resides in the citizens to an absolute liberty, which should be constrained by no authority, whether ecclesiastical or civil, whereby they may be able openly and publicly to manifest and declare any of their false ideas whatsoever, either by word of mouth, by the press, or in any other way. Now, what does Vatican II affirm? Vatican II affirms what we have just heard condemned by the authority of the Catholic Church. In paragraph 2 of the document of religious liberty, it says... This Vatican Synod declares that the human person has a right to religious freedom. This freedom means that all men are immune from coercion on the part of individuals or of social groups or of any human power in such wise that in matters religious no one is to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his own beliefs nor is any one to be restrained from acting in accordance with his own beliefs whether privately or publicly whether alone or in association with others within due limits the right of the human person the document continues to religious liberty is to be recognized in the constitutional law whereby society is governed this is to become a civil right <clears throat> so what the council calls for then is a civil right to act entirely in accordance with your beliefs, whatever they should be. And that the, the government, and for that matter, not any human power has the right to come in and to hinder you in any way from acting in accordance with your beliefs. And this is what is precisely condemned by Pope Pius IX. Listen to Pope Pius IX again this is condemned, that a right resides in the citizens to an absolute liberty, which should be constrained by no authority, whether ecclesiastical or civil, whereby they may be able to openly and publicly manifest and declare any of their false ideas whatsoever, either by word of mouth, by the press, or in any other way. And lest anyone say that we are giving a Bad interpretation to Vatican II. If we look at the pronouncements of Paul VI and of John Paul II subsequent to this document and what they themselves have done with regard to changing the status of the Catholic Church in Catholic countries, we understand that this is the meaning that people have a right to do and to profess whatever religion they please in civil society. The most recent example of this is the fact that John Paul II himself rejoiced at the fact that a mosque was built in Rome. That this was a a wonderful thing that the people who profess the Muslim religion now can have a place to worship in Rome. Now this principle of immunity from coercion in religious matters has been condemned by the Church in many other places. The Church sees as the best situation in society that which, that in which the Catholic faith is recognized by the government as the one true faith, which was true in all societies in which the faith was prevalent before the French Revolution and that the government ought to take means to repress the profession and propagation of false religions. And that was true in all Catholic countries before the French Revolution. And as I have said before, the Church does foresee situations in which false religions may be tolerated in order to avoid a more serious evil. But toleration of an evil is not a civil right if an evil is tolerated that does not mean that it is a civil right if you have a civil right that means that before God and before society you have a right to do something that is a, a right to not be coerced against what you feel you want to do now Leo the 13th condemned this principle he said, "It is therefore not permitted to bring <clears throat> to light and to expose to the eyes of men that which is contrary to virtue and to truth, and even less still to place this license under the tutelage and the protection of the laws." Now that that is directly contrary to what Vatican II says. <clears throat> Leo the Thirteenth also said, "It is just." that the public authority use its solicitude to repress untrue doctrines, the most fatal pestilence of all for the mind, in order to prevent the evil from spreading out for the ruin of society. Pope Pius XII said, what does not correspond to the truth and to the moral law does not objectively have any right to existence or to propagate or to action. Pope Pius VII said, referring to the revolutionary constitution in France, which gave freedom to all religions, not only, he says, is the freedom of forms of worship and of conscience permitted there, to use the very terms of the article, but there is promised support and protection to this liberty. And besides, to the ministers of what are called the cults, By the fact itself that the liberty of all the cults without distinction is established, truth is intermingled with error, and the holy and immaculate spouse of Christ, outside of which there can be no salvation, is put into a class with heretical sects and even with the Jewish perfidy. Moreover, by promising favor and support to the sects of the heretics, One tolerates and favors not only their persons, but also their errors. It is, the Pope continues, implicitly the disastrous and forever deplorable heresy that St. Augustine mentions in these terms. And here is the quote of St. Augustine. Quote, it affirms that the heretics are on the right path and speak the truth, an absurdity so monstrous that I cannot believe that any sect really professes it end of quote now this signing and promulgation of this document which is the last of the council is the kiss of death for Vatican II on December 7th 1965 Paul VI placed his signature on this evil document saying at the end each and every one of the things set forth in this declaration has won the consent of the fathers of the most sacred council. We too, by the apostolic authority conferred on us by Christ, join with the venerable fathers in approving, decreeing, and establishing these things in the Holy Spirit. And we direct that what has been enacted in synod be published for God's glory and put his signature to it. Now in saying this, Paul the sixth, was attaching this teaching of Vatican II to the universal ordinary magisterium of the church. For whenever whenever the Pope and the bishops together, whether dispersed throughout the world or whether in council, teach with authority, then that is known as universal ordinary magisterium. And it is infallible. But this magisterium has contradicted the previous magisterium of the church. And because the previous magisterium of the church is the object of our faith, this contradictory magisterium must be the object of our dissent and our repudiation. It is as if they said our Lord is not present in the Holy Eucharist, or Christ is not God, or Our Lady is not immaculately conceived. Because these doctrines are the object of our faith, then what contradicts these doctrines is the object of our dissent and our repudiation, our condemnation. For light automatically excludes darkness. but because the teaching of authority of the church cannot contradict itself. The only possible conclusion is that Paul VI, despite appearances, did not have the apostolic authority which he claimed to have, and that the council was devoid as well of teaching authority. For the teaching authority of the church is the teaching authority of Christ. They are not two authorities. He who hears you hears me. And it is unthinkable, even blasphemous, that we would say that the teaching authority of Christ could contradict itself. For the truths of God are eternal. And hence, because they have used their their supposed teaching authority to promulgate that which is contrary to the teaching of the church, we must conclude that they did not have that teaching authority. In effect, that the Holy Ghost was not at that, at that council, that the Holy Ghost did not assist Paul VI by the power of the keys to promulgate Catholic doctrine. And this means that the whole basis of the new religion which is Vatican II is bogus and illegitimate. It also means that those who attempt to foist Vatican II upon the Catholic faithful are bogus and illegitimate pastors that is those who claim to be popes or bishops since they who intend to promulgate error to the church and to the human race as a whole, in the name of Christ, cannot receive from Christ an authority to teach, an authority to rule, and an authority to sanctify. For then Christ, in so doing, would deceive the human race in giving them the authority to teach, rule, and sanctify in his name. And at the same time promulgating error, it would mean that Christ would be deceiving the human race and leading the human race into error. And therefore we are bound to say, by the faith, that those who attempt to foist these errors upon us do not enjoy the authority of Christ. Now this discussion of religious liberty comes appropriately on the Sunday of the Last Judgment. This doctrine of religious liberty is that most impious doctrine that wishes to enthrone as a civil right and remember all right comes from God as a civil right the right to blaspheme Christ or the right to be an atheist for the document even mentions atheists that they have this right. the right to trample on the Holy Eucharist for it would be a religious matter if somebody, for example some Protestant said it is my duty to trample upon the Holy Eucharist in order to show that this is nothing but bread and Vatican II is defending his right to do that because that is a religious matter Or defending the right of the Muslims to say that the Trinity is excrement, as they say. Or the right to call Our Lady a harlot. That is what this impious doctrine defends. That God has given men a right to do such things. But on this Sunday we are reminded of the last judgment which recalls to us the authority of Christ, his coercive authority by which he will severely punish all who have had contempt for his truth or who have violated his law. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
0: We hope you've enjoyed, but more importantly, found informative and beneficial this week's presentation of From the Pulpit. We will be on air to continue with the fifth and final part of this series, which will be a finale of three sermons, one week from this evening at the same time, and we will continue to allow Bishop Sanborn to eloquently and forcefully explain to us the great break from Catholicism that was and is the Second Vatican Council. For more information on the work of Bishop Sanborn and of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, you may write to him at the following. The Most Reverend Donald J. Sanborn, 1000 Spring Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida, 34602 Donations to the seminary are always welcome, needed, and appreciated. We at Restoration Radio would ask that if you find this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small or large it may be. You can do so by going to the truerestoration.org webpage and clicking the PayPal Donate button at the bottom. To those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to leave us a message on our Twitter handle, at truerestoration, or you can contact us directly via email at mail at org. Until next time, keep the faith. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's watch.org.